The Daily Rios, episode 488, a fireside chat for September. Hey everyone, this is your host, Peter. This is just going to be a casual chit-chat episode, since September is turning out to be a far busier month than I had planned. I have a few updates on things, some comic book talk, some TV talk, and other items that may be of interest. So why is September so busy? Obviously, the new semester is keeping me busy, but I'm also prepping to move in two weeks, and that's been taking up time every day. My lease is up at the end of the month, so I've been purging, cleaning, going through all my stuff to see what's going to survive this next move. I certainly didn't want to add moving to my list of things to do this year, especially since I just moved into this place two years ago, but here we are. Breakups and pandemics and no theater work for the rest of the year. You know, 2020, what a year. So now because I'm moving, I'd really like to cut down on my comic book collection. I think I've talked about this several times uh, over the summer, and this is where uh, the first of my updates come comes into play. Now, if you've been listening to the past episodes since the end of July, you know that I'm running a fundraiser for a new laptop, and I'm happy to update that I'm now up to 65% after an amazing donation from a longtime friend that I've known since junior high. I mean, we're talking probably 36 years of friendship, I think. Now, among other things, Jer was the friend that taught me how to ride a bike back in our school days. I think this was around, you know, this was junior high. And we were going to meet up with some girls at a park near his house. And I had to admit that I didn't know how to ride. And he was like, you get on, you pedal, you're going to fall a few times, and you'll be fine. And sure enough, it was that simple. Um, so Jer was also a big comic book fan. I don't know if he's collecting these days. And we were part of a, a, a group of school friends, some of whom also read comics. And this was years before meeting uh, the guys that would make up the original CGS crew. Um, most of them I met after college. This early group of friends during uh, junior high and high school, we were around when things like Crisis hit and Dark Knight Returns. And we used to gush over Art Adams on Longshot or the X-Men New Mutants Asgard story. And we were there for Booster Gold and Blue Beetle and the Bwahaha Justice League and Born Again Year One, Black Suit Spider-Man. It was this crew that I even discovered Golden Eagle Comics in the first place uh, at its first store on 5th and Spring Streets in Reading, Pennsylvania. So if you're a longtime CGS podcast listener, you know that we talked about Golden Eagle Comics a lot and its owner, Lem. Uh, it's the comic shop that brought many of us together in the first place. In the mid-80s, the original store was close to my house and was on the way to my senior high school. So my school friends and I went there often, hung out, ate the snacks that he sold, you know, looked at back issues that were too expensive to buy at the time, um, it was a way to talk comics. It was a way to create our own characters. And we even used to help Lem pull his subscriber pull lists. 
and he would pay us just by giving us a few comics for free or some posters or something like that, you know, real cheap child labor. <laughs> now, when Lem passed away in 2008, I wasn't able to attend his funeral because I was in a theater production at the time, but the CGS crew said that they saw a picture on a memorial board of the old Fifth and, Spru uh, Fifth and Spring store, and in it, in the picture, was me and some of my school friends standing in front of the counter with Lem, and I really wanted to see that picture. I wanted to see how old I was. I wanted to see which of my friends uh, was also in the picture, and I just wanted to capture that time and capture that original store because, you know, it's a major spark for my comic collecting, and it definitely was a source of happiness as a kid. So, yeah, big, big thanks and love to Jer for reaching out, for helping out with Operation Rebuild, getting me to 65%. And thanks to others uh, as well since my last update uh, or anyone who has helped spread the word. I'm, I'm thinking once I move, once I'm settled in, um, I'll probably see where the fundraiser is by that point and just take the plunge to get my new tech. So back to my collection. One of the other ways that listeners can help out uh, with the fundraiser instead of just a straight donation uh, and a way which will help with my move, uh, I finally started to list a bunch of comics for sale on the website. Uh, comics, collections, trades, hardcovers. If you go to thedailyreels.com, the first post, it's a sticky post, uh, is entitled For Sale. And it has the items, it has pictures, it has short descriptions, and, and cheap prices. So right now I have things on there like Scott Pilgrim, Strangers in Paradise, the Event Leviathan series with some tie-ins, Dr. Midnight by Matt Wagner and John K. Snyder, a bunch of Darkness Trades, the Smacks miniseries by Alan Moore, other Brian Lee O'Malley stories, and I'm updating as much as I can each day. Proceeds will go to the laptop fund, and this way you get something back, right? And prices are definitely priced to move, as they say. Uh, most of these items are less than half their original cost, and I've included domestic media mail shipping costs into the asking price just to make everything easy. So if you miss going to conventions or comic stores and you're hankering for some back-issue buys, here you go. Um, I've already sold 60 Batman books, including a lot of the New 52 Snyder Capullo run, and I also sold the Hour Man and Stars and Stripes series that I have. Uh, take a peek. Uh, there's got, there might be something there that uh, you'll want. So Operation Rebuild uh, can now be supported by a donation or by helping me to cut down on my collection. Just send me an email, peter at thedailyrios.com. In 2014, two comic fans joined forces to do a Doom Patrol podcast. As there was no Doom Patrol comic series at the time, they called it Waiting for Doom. That was us, me, Mike, and him, Paul. In 2016, DC Comics became fearful of the power of Waiting for Doom and sought to appease us by bringing the comic back. Uh, that's not exactly how it went. In 2018, terrified of the sheer horde organising power of Waiting for Doom, DC Universe announced a Doom Patrol TV show. Uh, I think they were planning that without us. In 2019, they again brought back the Doom Patrol comic, hoping we would not smite them. Uh, th this makes no sense. In 2021, they realised we were the most unstoppable force in existence and released the Doom Patrol movie. Uh, this is pure fantasy now. 
In 2022, a terrified Motion Picture Academy awarded the Doom Patrol movie every single Oscar, including Best Documentary and Foreign Language Film. Uh, That's enough, Paul. Look, we just love the Doom Patrol and have fun talking about them. You can find us on all podcast places and now Spotify. And check out our website, WaitingForDoom.com, or we will wipe you out, all of you. If you don't follow my Twitter or Instagram, most likely you don't know that one of my ongoing reads lately, since the beginning of August, has been the old 1980s reference series, Marvel Saga, the official history of the Marvel Universe. Now, you know me, if if there's something I want to read that's more modern, I usually always have an impulse to go back and read anything that might relate to it from previous decades, and that's that's exactly what's going on here. I knew that I wanted to read History of the Marvel Universe, the the new six-issue series by Mark Wade and Javier Rodriguez, so I thought, let, let me go back to the 25 issues of Marvel Saga first, and it's been a really great ride. I'm currently up to issue eight. Um, I'm posting... Uh, my thoughts about the series on Twitter, which is why I mentioned it. And um, it was edited by Danny Fingeroth and and written by researcher Peter Sanderson, who was also the researcher behind a lot of the uh, DC stuff for their 50th anniversary events, Crisis and Who's Who. So basically, the Marvel saga is just a chronological retelling of events in the Marvel age, Uh, using comics from the original Marvel age, but also uh, any comics from later decades. And, you know, it's all mixed together um, as a way to tell this huge narrative. So it's either uh, you're reading the narration or you're actually reading panels from some of those older comics. And for me, it's just been really great because I'm, I'm starting to fill in a lot of the gaps in my Marvel history. But ultimately, what's been what's been amazing, um, I'm starting to see a lot of connections, either obvious ones or, or established ones, but also connections between characters or events that maybe haven't been explored, and that's been a lot of fun. So some exa- uh, examples of that. Um, you get a lot of characters that existed together maybe during a war, right? Or they're in the same city. That's kind of obvious. But simple things like... Before they became superheroes, both Donald Blake and Stephen Strange were practicing surgeons in New York City. Did we ever get a story about that? Did did they know each other? Were they rivals? Like, that could be great. Or, you know, obvious locations like Mount Wondegore and Transia, where you have characters like Puppet Master and Victor Von Doom before he became Doctor Doom, and obviously later generations like Scarlet Witch and Quicksilver, you know, the the American military is all over the place. I mean, there there are obvious ones like Fantastic Four or the Hulk. But when you start to mix in later origins, like the origin of uh, James Hudson of Alpha Flight, and you realize, oh, the American military was there too. And I didn't realize that the American military every now and then was part of Thor's origin. So those connections are fascinating to me. Uh, I want to know what all these untold stories are. And it even reminds me of a miniseries that I love that I I, I might have mentioned every now and then. Uh, It's from 1998. It's a two-issue miniseries from Marvel. It's called Conspiracy by Dan Abnett and painted by Igor Corday. It's told very much in the way that 
Kurt Busiek and Alex Ross told Marvels, where it's taking a look at the larger Marvel universe. Um, and what it does is it ties all of this military stuff that I'm reading in Marvel Saga into one big story and how this think tank, this, this secret group called Control, very much like uh, a precursor to the Illuminati, basically pulled the strings to make all these things happen. You know, they're the ones who made the Fantastic Four the Fantastic Four. They're the ones who created the origin of Spider-Man. They're the ones that were behind the scenes of the Hulk and Ant-Man and Egghead and all these other characters. Now, the story doesn't get wrapped up. It's kind of uh, um, frustrating the way it ends. But the potential of, of what it was trying to play in and then you mix in like some of this Marvel saga stuff is really great. And um, to me, it's kind of like my own headcanon. I, I kind of look at it and go, yeah, that's what the Marvel Universe is. Very much in the way that um, when DC put out Golden Age, that Elseworlds story by James Robinson and Paul Smith, um, it wasn't meant to be the official history of uh, the Golden Age characters, but you could tell that James Robinson pulled some of the story elements from Golden Age into his later JSA series. So, uh, yeah, big fan of it. And I'm having so much fun with Marvel Saga, and I can't wait to continue. Speaking of reference material, uh, Rebellion is putting out an encyclopedia. I just got this in my email, and it's been on a couple websites. The first ever comprehensive and definitive encyclopedia of the worlds of 2000 AD. Launching in the pages of the Judge Dread magazine this month, the 2000 AD encyclopedia will, for the first time, bring together synopses and details of every series published in the weekly anthology and its sister, and its sister comic, the Judge Dread magazine. Uh, this is written by Scott Montgomery. The project will be serialized, starting with Judge Dread magazine 424, mid-September, and it covers A to B from Mike Carey and Andy Clark's uh, sci-fi series 13 to John Wagner and Arthur Ranson's 90s anti-hero title Button Man. And then the whole series will be collected into a single volume in early 2022 as part of the celebrations around 2000 AD's 45th anniversary. So I'm a reference nut, so when I saw that, I had to bookmark it and just give it a little shout-out. Now, other things I'm reading at this time, the Dune series of books. Uh, I'm almost done with Dune Book 2, Dune Messiah. I started reading Dune because, um, you know, obviously the new movie is coming out, and it's a sci-fi series that I never finished. I read book one years ago. I read it again recently, and I said, okay, I got to get through everything here. Now, I liked the first book. This second book, um... It's okay. I don't think it grabbed me as much as book one, but I can tell it's really the story that Frank Herbert wants to write. You know, it's way more emotionally driven than the first book. It's very introspective. It's very tense. Um, you know, Paul's, uh, the lead character, Paul's struggles with being a ruler and a prophet as the galaxy around him changes from all of the events of book one. You know, it almost takes on a, a, a gospel approach. Um, so, you know, book one was far more linear. 
Uh, it was more direct in its plot. This chapter, there's definitely stuff going on, but it all seems to be in the background and the storytelling and what Frank Herbert wants to talk about um, with everything that go, that's going on with future history and, and uh, Paul having these visions and, you know, it, I, I get it. I totally get where he's going with it. I, it just hasn't grabbed me just yet, but I'm going to continue on. Now, fortunately, for those interested in the movie, and if you have nothing, if you have no knowledge of the books at all, don't let what I said discourage you, because as I said, book one is fairly linear. Um, after all the sci-fi that has come out since Dune first hit in 1965, you're not going to have trouble following it or the Lord, larger story beats. I don't even know how far the movie is going to get. Is it going to finish book one? Is it just going to be a part of book one? Um, either way, you're going to be able to understand it. So uh, I'm, I'm glad I'm reading it, though. And there's a lot of comics that are coming out from Boom Studios and other places, some prequel stories. So, you know, it's a Dune year, and, and I'm excited for that. Now, before I shipped a bunch of Batman books out to their new owner, I finally read Batman the Cult. Uh, the four-issue prestige miniseries from 1988 by Jim Starlin, Bernie Wrightson, Bill Ray, John Costanza, and others. This was a, a, a series that was on the heels of what DC was doing with their prestige line in the mid-'80s, uh, along with Dark Knight Returns, Green Arrow, The Longbow Hunters, uh, Black Hawk, Blood and Iron, The Killing Joke, Superman, The Earth Stealers, which is a prestige format book that I never read, um, by the time Batman the Cult came out, Jim Starlin was writing Batman. Uh, we had already gotten Year One by Frank Miller and Year Two um, over on Detective Alan Grant and John Wagner were, were starting their run. So it was a series that I never read and I had for a while in my collection. The basic premise of the story is a character known as Deacon Joseph Blackfire more or less just takes over the city through a lot of his religious zealotry. Um, he gets all the homeless people to his side. He gets a lot of people who are... He gets the downtrodden to his side. And they start to take out the criminal element. They start to take out some political figures. And um, they have uh, kidnapped Batman and brainwashed him and drugged him, and he is fighting for them until eventually he's freed. And then, you know, there's a, a big uprising by the end, and, and the main character is defeated. Um, the first two issues are great. The second two issues, I think the story kind of veers off from what it was trying to do. Certainly at the time, you can see how this was uh, a Batman story that would be um, uh, controversial and... and uh, given a lot of um, response from readers. Um, having read it now, after things like Arkham Asylum and No Man's Land and seeing the Dark Knight Rises movie and in an odd way, even reading the original Metal series, the Metal event, there's a lot of stuff that you can see uh, that probably was either inspired by the cult or is playing with the same themes. Um, you know, as, as I'm reading, I'm going, whoa, there's so much future echoes from, from so much stuff. So other Batman stories, it's kind of all compounded into this 
one story, which is why I'm, I'm glad I read it because now I can kind of think of it in chronological terms and go, oh, right, you know, uh, taking over Gotham and destroying all the bridges. That happened in the cult. You know, using iconography and drugs and uh, brainwashing Batman and um, visions of, of, of his parents and, and other villains, you know, that's a lot of the stuff that um, you could say has played out elsewhere as well. So, you know, like I said, it starts out great. I think the ending is okay. It's super rushed by the time you get to the ending. I mean, it literally wraps up in two to three pages, which I hate. Um, the rights and stuff is good. You kind of wish Jim Starlin would have given him some more visual stuff to play with instead of talking heads stuff. But the few splash pages and double splash pages are fantastic. Um, it, it has that bombastic quality that Dark Knight has as well. It's always kind of fun to see when the world of Batman just goes to, goes outrageous. Um, and I think where it really excels is it is a complete mirror to everything that is going on today. The current fervor, political fervor and, um, racial tensions and all that. I mean, it, as I was reading it, there's bits of dialogue that, um, you know, <laughs> it's it's just a direct mirror to everything that's going on today. And and in that regards, it's kind of great. So I'm glad I read it. I'm glad I read it. A long, long, long time ago. In a galaxy far, far away. Flight Risk Podcast is like no other Star Wars actual play. Set in an alternate universe during the Old Republic, where the Jedi of Sith War still rages on, and blasters and lightsabers are not readily available. These eccentric agents of the enigmatic Count Yindel traverse an unpredictable and deadly criminal underworld. Follow mercenary Bail Bronda, very well, very well. No need for my head to roll just yet. We still have plenty of other heads that need to roll before mine. Lounge singer Skip Fortuna. And thank you, Lothar, for not closing the door on friendship. Tinker. Anarchy Fortuna. <laughs> I see your piranhas and raise you sharks with freaking laser beams. And bodyguard Dork Throg. Have we considered doing something a little less uh, suicidal? As they attempt to find fortune without losing their souls. New episodes are released every Friday. Follow us at Flight Risk Pod and subscribe wherever podcasts can be found. Finally, let's talk some TV. Uh, I am powering through some Marvel Netflix shows, finally, after all these years. Daredevil Season 1, Jessica Jones Season 1, and I am midway through Daredevil Season 2. Now, if you haven't seen them, fast forward uh, a few minutes to the end of this podcast. Daredevil Season 1, first of all, all these shows, this is a no-brainer if you've seen them, are so good. They're 13 episodes, they're short, they're compact, they get to the point. The acting is great. 
in most cases. Um, just the way it's filmed and developed is just interesting. And I think, I think it's, I, I get it, it's on Netflix, so it, it can have a different tone and a different temper. But you just want to say, boy, you, you kind of wish a lot of the ABC Marvel shows were just the same, you know, were just had better storytelling and, and more intriguing um, uh, characterization for, for a lot of the the characters that are in the in this in these shows Daredevil season 1 man the the breakdown of Kingpin and and Vanessa their romance and how they met and and the development of his character and and what he's going through the psychological nature of it all um that was so interesting to watch and uh you know Vincent D'Onofrio just killed it with uh, the way he acted Kingpin. I mean, it's it's a stunning take. It really is a, a great take of that character. Um, the first season is, is, a, is a slow burn for uh, Matthew Murdoch to become Daredevil. Um, I think the acting is solid. It was just interesting. I, I was watching an episode, and then I was like, okay, I got to watch another episode. I just found myself really engaged. And the fight scenes are great. They're not overly stylized. They don't feel glossy like the CW DC shows. There's some weight behind a lot a lot of what's going on. Um, there's one or two times in the first season where I was like, okay, that that feels very choreographed. But for the most part, I'm really enjoying it. Then you get to the second season, and they just throw subtlety right out the window. This is the Punisher season, at least for the first half, and Elektra has already um, popped up. Um the fights are brutal between Matt and Punisher, and they're really brawls. I mean, you can feel them making contact, and when they kick, they, they recoil, and people are getting, you know, uh, shoved into walls. And I don't know, there was just something about it. I, I keep watching some of the fights over and over because I'm like, that's a good fight. The choreography's there, but it feels real. Like, they feel like they're connecting. And it reminded me of the one moment, there's like one moment in... Um, Dark Knight Rises, near the end, where Batman and Bane are, are having some of their final fights, and Bane has Batman up against a pillar, and is just throwing punches and duking it out, and then he starts to hit the pillar, and Bane is growling, and, and the weight of the punches that are being thrown, it just feels like they're connecting for real, and that's a lot of what I felt some of these fights in season two of Daredevil, um... That's that's a lot of what's going on here. So it's it's really great. Now, um, I'm not necessarily a fan of Charlie Cox as Matt Murdock. I tend to like him more as Daredevil than I do Matt Murdock. There's just something about him that he, he doesn't have a leading man quality to him. And, you know, I think back where I guess people say that Frank Miller... Uh, modeled his Matt Murdock off of like Robert Redford visually and I don't know why but that just always kind of stuck with me but when I look at Charlie Cox I I don't see a leading man he he's cut from the cloth that Scott Bakula is cut from both in look and the way he sounds and it's 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 okay it just doesn't necessarily really work for me but as I said when he's Daredevil 
I'm fine. Um, I think in the second season, Foggy is really coming into play. I like the strengths that they're showing both as a character and as an actor for, for Foggy. Um, Karen is, they're, they're, I think season two, they're struggling to find things for her to do. But, but it's fine. You know, it's definitely fine. Electra is okay. I, they, I think they could have gone with a, a better choice, someone who was uh, Greek, first of all. Um, and I'm getting really tired of anytime there's a character that's, you know, not from the U.S., they, they just have, have to have either, you know, some kind of U.K., some kind of French accent. Like, there are so many other dialects and accents in the world, and you have a character that's supposed to be Greek. Like, come on, that's not that hard. You know, figure it out. Come on, that's not that hard. Now, Jessica Jones, that was another series that, man... I just got right into it. I was really surprised how much I liked that first season. And I feel like uh, Kristen Ritter, as Jessica Jones, fits her character and has more range than Charlie Cox does. Now, I get it. She plays hard and dark and, and cynical, and that could probably grate on a lot of people. But if you really watch, you can see some really great acting stuff going on. Not only physically, but also with what she's doing with her voice. And I think Charlie Cox just doesn't ever get there, at least not in the what I've seen so far. Um, the other thing I liked about Jessica Jones, uh, David Tennant as, as the Purple Man, great. Um, Luke Cage, the addition of that character. I don't, it just, it's good. I, <laughs> the other Marvel characters that are in it, um, I'm liking these seasons much more than I ever thought I did. I'm I'm glad I'm watching them now and not when they were initially released because I don't think I would have given over to them as much as I am now. Um, there's an episode in Jessica Jones, It's I think it's episode six, where she has to reveal something to Luke and it is just devastating to her. And uh, as I was watching it, I was like, whoa, that's great. That for a TV, for... For a Marvel-produced show, I thought it was really great acting. It was a really great moment. And I read a bunch of reviews, uh, mostly by men, who were saying, oh, you know, it was such an overly dramatic moment. And, uh, you know, it was played out so uh, over the top. And I was like, look, come on. The, the way these characters are written, you know, the secrets that they have, the trauma that they have... Uh, you know, she's, she has to tell him this secret that she's been hiding from him uh, so that she can save another man's life. It's a superhero show. It's supposed to be dramatic. But, and I, you know, this is where I pull out my actor-director card. It was played well. It was acted well. And it doesn't matter if it's over the top or dramatic. It's, it's how does it feel? You know, does it, does it work? And a lot of times some of these reviewers, you know, they don't really come at it from an acting point of view. They just come at it from... Um, their own personal reaction, you know, they're like, "Oh, if I was in that, if I was in that situation, I wouldn't have done that." Well, you weren't in that situation. This character was in that situation, you know, and that's how they chose to react. So, uh, yeah, I'm all in. Uh, just, just some good stuff. I can't wait to keep going. Are you tired of fanboy comics podcasts? Looking for a show that really appreciates the comic storytelling medium and how it works? A show that looks at comics from any genre and anywhere in the world, comparing the storytelling techniques of different creators in different comics cultures. 
with manga, newspaper strips, European comics, and more discussed alongside mainstream U.S. comics. A show that includes talks with well-known creators like James Robinson and Dan Jurgens, and with less famous creators that you really should know. And hey, we'll even critique your comic. If you're looking for that show, then you're looking for Deconstructing Comics, and it's right here at deconstructingcomics.com. Also available in iTunes and on Stitcher. This is Tim saying check out our show on Wednesdays. That's Deconstructing Comics. All right, to close us out here, uh, some of my students uh, are getting into podcasting, so I wanted to give them a couple shout-outs. First up, we have Everybody Says Don't. It's a theater podcast by Gabrielle and Bella investigating the myriad of ways professionals in the industry are keeping up their abilities and working through the pain of being in isolation in a time where theater artists are unable to use live performance and keep consistent work during a pandemic. The show's goal is to inspire hope for artists and offer up a platform to share work and creativity. Again, it's called Everybody Says Don't. I am going to be on a future episode, so when I'm on on the show, I will make sure everybody knows. And then also, Braving the Bard podcast. It's a, a, a Shakespeare audio drama, a Shakespeare read, but done in a radio style. And it's uh, hosted by Allie and Val, or produced by Allie and Val. And first up, they have a Midsummer's Night's Dream. Uh, and again, it's kind of like an audio drama, but they're reading through the play and acting it out. Um, there's music, there's sound effects. It's very fun. Both of these podcasts, I will provide a link in the show notes. And that's it for today's episode. Uh, I want to thank you all for listening. And remember, reach out to me if you'd like to help out with the Operation Rebuild fundraiser, Peter at the Daily Rios.com, for, uh, uh If you want to give a donation or if you want to buy some comics, check out the uh, post on the website. This has been The Daily Rios, episode 488 for Friday, September 11th, 2020. Talk to you soon. <laughs>